Welcome to the Week Ahead in Russia, RFRL's Monday podcast about significant developments and upcoming events in Moscow and beyond. I'm Steve Gutterman, and my guest this week is Sam Green, a professor at the Russia Institute at King's College London, Director of Democratic Resilience at the Center for European Policy Analysis, or SIPA, and co-author of the book Putin Versus the People. Sam, thank you very much for joining me this week. It's great to have you on the podcast again. I think the last time was back in September. Thank you very much for having me back, Steve. All right. It's great to, it's great to have you back. Um, one thing I'll just say, uh, um, I, I read your, your, um, your Substack uh, um, newsletter or, or blog this weekend, um, and the, the introduction was quite, I don't know, it just made me feel uh, just about how it's been a year since, since, since the invasion and, you know, every day, every hour, you know, Ukrainians don't know, you know, w- what's going to happen in the next hour. They can't count on, on essentially being alive. Um, so uh, that really struck me because sometimes I think we and I forget, or not forget, but um, uh, the, the war kind of becomes something that is happening and, and you need to stop sometimes and think about, you know, how, how horrible it really is and how, how unnecessary. Um, so thanks for that. Okay, I'll go on now. Um, last Friday, February 24th, marked one year since Russia launched its large-scale invasion of Ukraine, uh, massively escalating what had been a smaller conflict in the Donbass in eastern Ukraine that began in 2014. I will talk about this one-year mark and what may be in store um, in the coming year, but first, I want to ask about uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin's address to the nation, to, to Russia, uh, that came earlier last week on February 21st. Uh, he gave the speech one day after U.S. President Joe Biden traveled to Kiev, and one year after a particularly dark address by Putin uh, that made many who doubted Russia would invade change their minds. At the time, you wrote that you had never seen a Putin speech quite like it and that Putin was, quote, laying the groundwork for the wholesale occupation of Ukraine, unquote. Now, if that was the plan, um, as we know, it failed dramatically. Uh, Russian forces failed to take Kiev, and in fact, uh, since the invasion, they've only taken one regional capital, Kherson, which they relinquished in November. Um, So Ukraine has taken that back. Now, now, one year after the invasion, the end of the war uh, does not seem to be in sight. Uh, and you know, it's been said uh, that in many countries, a leader whose military campaign suffered as many failures as Putin's invasion of Ukraine has would soon be out of office. But Putin obviously um, is still in office and he's still delivering speeches. Sam, what did you think of this one, the speech that he made on February 21st? Well, you know, I'm glad that you brought up the speech from um, from a year ago. Although it's a, it's it's an unpleasant speech to remember because I think the contrast um, is um, uh, is instructive. Um, Putin does continue to use a lot of the same uh, uh, rhetoric, um, but he um, uh, I think a couple of things are missing. Um, 
one thing that's missing is just the emotion of it, the fire and brimstone um, uh, of it. Right? It was very much present uh, a year ago and which has been toned down now. And, and maybe it's simply difficult to keep up that level of of sort of emotional um, uh, fire. And and certainly I think that there's very little sense in the Russian public that anybody is up for that level of emotional sort of engagement, uh, or at least that, that very many people are up for that. It's, it's a difficult thing to maintain for a long period of time. Um, but, uh, you know, along with that, what's missing in the, in the second speech is the, um, uh, is the clarity, right? Uh, you know, Putin was, uh, was very clear in his first speeches ahead of this war, right? That, um, uh, you know, th that his goals were maximalist, right? Uh, that his goals were taking over the entirety of the country, uh, creating regime change, and uh, if not fully incorporating Ukraine formally into Russia, then at least, uh, you know, putting it in a situation, uh, you know, much like that of Belarus or, or, or even worse, right, in, in which any government in, in Kiev would be essentially a puppet of Moscow. Um, now, I'm certain that Putin would be very happy to achieve those aims uh, if he still could, right? But as you said, it became very clear to the rest of us, if it wasn't already clear, and certainly clear to Putin uh, within the first couple of weeks of the war, that that wasn't uh, going to happen uh, uh, that way, or at least it wasn't going to happen in, in any reasonable time frame, uh, if it was ever going to happen uh, uh, at all. Um, and so we've seen him spend the ensuing year building and maintaining a, a degree of, of rhetorical sort of fluidity and, uh, and, and room for maneuver, right? So that he... Um, you know, can portray just about anything um, as uh, as a success. Um, that's that speaks to a certain extent to, to your question about you know what um, you know why, given the, the amount of failure that he has uh, uh, achieved, so to speak, right? Why he hasn't faced consequences? It's because he's allowed himself, and certainly with a pliant media and a pliant political establishment, to um, you know make anything short of you know catastrophic defeat uh, look like uh, a success. Um, and I think we saw that uh, very clearly in this um, uh, in this speech. He did not clarify his aims. He did not clarify his threats. He did not set out a, a pathway towards escalation uh, or uh, or towards any particular uh, uh, war aims. Um, and so, um, you know, we've seen, I think, uh, yes, a Putin that is is very committed to war as such. But it doesn't seem to care quite as much, or at least doesn't seem to to speak quite as much about exactly what that war is meant to achieve, as long as he remains in power. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, great points about about what he said, and, and especially didn't say in in the speech. Um, I mean, one of my colleagues wrote a, an analysis about it, which essentially said he's, he's trying to normalize war or normalize the war. Uh, you know, for Russians, um, kind of um, getting them used to the the idea that war is 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 normal. Soldiers are going to get two weeks vacation um, every, I think, twice a year, things like that. Um, but he did not mention. He really didn't mention aims. Uh, I mean, he. I would say he, he spoke about. Um, you know, uh, benefits for uh, the families of, of veterans and soldiers who've been killed, but he really didn't speak at all in any detail about what's happening in Ukraine, and he didn't say what 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 it means to win, 
Uh, and he also didn't even, as far as I remember, he didn't promise um, that Russia would win, um, which he's done in the past. Um, and of course, they are trying to frame this as a war, essentially a defensive war against NATO and, and the U.S. now, um, which, which he did, again, try to frame it that way. But he really didn't, didn't mention, you know, as, as you said, he didn't mention he aims uh, so um, again, it does leave leave room, I guess, for uh, for him to claim to claim victory uh, under almost any circumstances, almost any circumstances. Um, but uh, but also leaves little clarity about what you know what may happen. Uh, so thanks for for those comments. Um, I'd like to talk about the the war more broadly. Uh, so it's now been over a year since the Russian invasion. Uh, and Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is vowing to recapture all territories seized by Russia, including Crimea, uh, which was seized in 2014. Um, since then, in September, uh, Putin and Russia claimed that four other regions of Ukraine um, you know, are, are actually Russian. Um, really no grounds for that claim, aside from a, from, um, a referendum or so-called referendum that was widely dismissed as a sham. Um, now, Biden uh, and the West, uh, Biden traveled to Kiev, um, was there one day before Putin's speech. Uh, Biden and the West are promising to support Ukraine for as long as it takes, uh, without, I believe, saying exactly what that means, uh, you know, what, what is as long as it takes. Um, and Putin has been signaling, including in this speech, uh, that Russia is in it for the long haul. So, uh, Sam, I'm not going to ask you what you think is going to happen in the war in the coming year, but I, what I will ask is what you'll be watching for, what kind of developments could have a substantial effect on the course of the war, or whether that uh, would mean on the battlefield or in diplomacy uh, in terms of, of aid and support or inside Russia or Ukraine or in the West for that matter. Well, thank you for not asking me to predict the future. Um, it's um, something I don't enjoy doing. But but look, I mean, um, there's a lot of things to look for, right? Things that we think can be important. Um, the battlefield, certainly, as you mentioned, is one of them, although I'm not a military analyst. And, and so uh, I tend to, to look at what the smart people, the people we all read and listen to, right? Um, uh, you know, we'll, uh, we'll say about that. Some of that, I suppose, is is fairly... Uh, obvious if there's a collapse, if there's if, if, of, of, of the lines on either side, if there's major progress made. We don't seem to be seeing that, but we've been surprised in the past. And I think we need to retain the capacity uh, to at least imagine being surprised uh, in the in the future. Um, but I, I tend to think that uh, as important as the battlefield is, the war is going to be won or lost um, in the minds of um, of people making the decisions, right? Um, and that's different in different countries. So you mentioned, you know, Zelensky has, uh, again, in, in sharp contrast to Putin, but also, frankly, in contrast to Biden and most Western leaders, has been very clear about exactly what um, uh, what victory means. It means the full and incontrovertible uh, restoration of Ukrainian sovereignty and territorial integrity. Um, uh, now, you know, 
Zelensky is a politician like like any other, whether in a democracy like Ukraine or or, or in an autocracy like Russia, you know, who does have to 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 uh, you know pay some attention to what people on the ground think, to what constituents think, obviously, uh, in a much more direct way uh, in Ukraine than in uh, uh, than in Russia. But the fact that he um, is uh, so clear about what what he's trying to achieve and what Ukraine is trying to achieve is a reflection of the kind of relationship that he has with the Ukrainian people, right? So he um, draws his power and he draws his uh, war aims uh, from the Ukrainian people, right? He is seeking all uh, of that, you know, complete victory um, because that is where the, re- the, the, the Ukrainian people um, are at the moment. Is it possible that the Ukrainian people at some point will shift? Yes, right? I don't see any indication that that's shifting. Um, but um, it, it's, it would be foolish to rule out the possibility that Ukrainians at some point, um, you know, could say, actually, we need to we need to stop fighting or we need to to, to, to draw some lines. I, I um, you know, that's the, the sovereign and democratic right of the Ukrainian people to um, to to decide. Right. So one thing to um, continue to, to monitor is Ukrainian public opinion and, 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 and how that's reflected in uh, in Zelensky's uh, policies. Um, Another thing, uh, you know, to to monitor is, uh, you know, whether or not um, the uh, Western position begins to um, uh, to harden and solidify in, in reflecting that clarity uh, that we're seeing from um, uh, from from Kiev. You, know, you you mentioned my Substack, and thank you for the plug. Uh, but my, my my core argument uh, uh, in that right was really that uh, it's it, it's wonderful to say. Uh, that we will be in it for as long as it takes, but we should make sure that it doesn't take any longer uh, than it has to. This is happening at a, at a tremendous cost uh, for Ukraine uh, and um, and Ukrainians, right? Um, but there's also kind of um, uh, there is, I think, a war fighting uh, uh, aspect to that uh, to that commitment that hasn't really come through from the West. At the end of the day, we've provided just about every weapon system that Ukraine has asked for late. Um, too late in 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 some cases, um, but uh, the one thing that we really haven't provided right has been that sense of um, of of a commitment to Ukrainian victory on Ukrainian terms and to doing that as um, as quickly as possible. And that's important because it it can begin to shift. I think the third thing uh, that we should be paying attention to, which is Putin's own calculations. Right, Putin, as you said, is setting this up as kind of a forever war. Um, which you know suits his purposes uh, as uh, as president, as you've as we've seen, he's been able to a degree to normalize this for uh, for the Russian population to convince people that this is something that they can bear uh, for a long time to come, and that does you know really keep him central uh, and sustainable in uh, in in Russian politics. But that's predicated on the idea uh, that um, uh, time is on his side, right, uh, and that he can control. Uh, through the amount of effort that, that, that he uh, uh, imposes on the war, through the amount of men that he sends to the front, through the amount of material that he's uh, uh, able to, to raise, that, that more or less he controls the pace of, uh, of fighting. He can speed it up or he can slow it down. Um, if we uh, you know, were to make it clear uh, that, in fact, we're going to empower Ukraine not just to persist, um, but to, uh, to push the pace of the war, uh, and 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 to alter that calculation, then I think we could see um, uh, Putin eventually decide that in fact um, there is less to be gained uh, through fighting this war uh, than he has allowed himself to imagine thus far. So those are the three things I would I would look for. I would look for again 
or the dynamics in Ukrainian public opinion, I would look for uh, the clarity of commitment from the West. And I would look for uh, uh, Putin's calculations in response to those two things. Uh, thanks very much, Sam. That, that's, uh, that's very helpful, I think, for, for thinking about this. Um, uh, just, just to, just to um, follow up, uh, one thing you mentioned, I mean, I would say, I, I guess Putin, you know, he mentioned one thing he did, he didn't say much in the speech really at all on February 21st. Um, he said very little that was meaningful um, or, or would make one kind of think, oh, this is what he's going to do. Or this is, um, but one thing he, he did mention the Russian um, elections uh, the presidential election coming up in March 2024, you know, I would assume that he's not going to, you know, short of a, an actual, you know, a big victory, which doesn't, you know, uh, certainly doesn't seem uh, probable at all for Russia in that time period. You know, I, I would assume that he's going to continue to kind of push the war and, and, and make it keep happening, at least through through that that time. Um, but one thing I would ask, you mentioned at the beginning of your response, uh, we should be, or I think you did, that we should be ready, at least um, for unexpected developments in terms of, you know, one lesson is nobody, lots of people predicted, uh, you know, failed to predict what would happen, uh, whether Ukraine, whether Russia would invade, and then, you know, many people, as we know, um, analysts and others uh, believe that Russia would, would pretty much achieve its goals quickly. Um, and, and that didn't happen, as we discussed. Um, and the idea that we didn't know what was going to happen um, uh, last year, and, and now we still don't know what could could happen. So my, I guess a follow-up question is, both, both in terms of the battlefield and the diplomacy and, and support for Ukraine and Putin's calculations, you know, all those things you mentioned, um, do you think there there is sort of a, a chance um, that that any or all of those things could kind of shift uh, shift uh, in, in the in the coming year or so? Yes, no, I do think that all of those things can shift again. You know, with the caveat that I'm not a military analyst, right? Um, if we remember, you know, last summer uh, when we were settling in for uh, a war of attrition, right, um, and then uh, you know all of a sudden. Uh, you know, we see uh, the tremendous breakthroughs that the Ukrainian military made in the Northeast around Kharkiv. Um, and, uh, and and the, the conversation certainly here in Washington around a war of attrition evaporated right? um, almost overnight, right? All of a sudden there was this question of actually, could there be a catastrophic collapse of of, of Russian lines is is Ukraine going to be able to push this forward? Ukraine was 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 very careful and cautious uh, about how it uh, it it managed that uh, advance. And again, from all of the, the, the smart uh, analysts that I listen to, that seems to have been the, um, the, the right way to go about things. Right? I, but, um, you know, we all of a sudden the conversation and the policy conversation around the war shifted. And, and, and then in a matter of weeks, it shifted back, right, as it became clear that, that Russia was dug in in certain positions and the ability and willingness of Ukraine to push the advance and, 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 and uh, you know, risk creating vulnerabilities for itself uh, was, uh, was limited again, probably as it, as it should have been. Um, you know, meant that, um, in fact, things were going to slow down. They bogged down again over the winter. And now we're all wondering what's going to happen with, um, uh, you know, Russia's renewed uh, offensive, which seems to be um, 
uh, which seems to be moving slowly, uh, uh, if at all, right? But uh, but everybody, uh, you know, should be aware of the fact that that can change. That then there will be a a Ukrainian uh, uh, response to that. Um, so, you know, the, um, the it strikes me again, and I say this entirely as a dilettante when it comes to things that involve you know guns and tanks and men fighting in trenches. That that um, uh, that that these. Uh, processes are are inherently contingent they are inherently um uh, unpredictable in and of themselves because they they have a logic that yes you know has something to do with all of the decisions that are being made here in offices in washington and in brussels and in berlin and in moscow and in kiev for that matter uh but they also involve uh lots of variables that are uh simply very difficult to uh uh to to track and even to to understand if you could track them um my my point really is that uh, if we keep sort of extrapolating our vision of the war right from the moment at which we we find ourselves, right, um, then we will continually be surprised, and we will continually behind, be behind the ball, and we will continually uh, struggle to focus on strategy. We will let our strategies, whether it's in terms of of how to deal with Russia or what kind of support to uh, uh, to give to Ukraine, or frankly how to talk about the war with our own populations ahead of our own elections, for example, in 2024 here in the US, um, that uh, if, if we're constantly in that responsive, um, reactive mode, uh, we're going to struggle to have a real strategy of our own. Uh, great point, uh, uh, including, the, including the part about um, upcoming elections here in, in the West. Um, so, uh, we're getting a little short on time, but um, but I'd like to take a few questions from listeners, um, if there are any. So please, um, if you'd like to ask a question, you can again you can hit the button in the in the Twitter space to request to speak. You can send a DM or post your question um, as a reply to the Twitter space. So I'll give it a few uh, moments. If anyone wants to raise their hand, request to speak. I guess uh, I don't see any questions for now. I'm gonna, uh, um, if you don't mind, Sam, I'll just ask a follow-up question. Sure. Uh, kind of. Uh, thanks. Kind of related to, to the last uh, the last point that you were making. Um, you know the the and you wrote about about Biden's words uh, in your in your Substack, um, uh, and and how it's actually pretty unusual um, pushback that the West has has given um, to. The Soviet or Russian uh, offensive, uh, going back to uh, Hungary and Czechoslovakia uh, and and Georgia and, and Ukraine in 2014, um, uh, and and you know he said uh, um, we we will support you um, for as long as it takes. I mean, do you think the the numbers? I think in terms of polls uh, in the U.S. at least, um, I haven't looked much at ones in Europe, but. Um, you know, they, they do seem to, I mean, you get some, some pretty loud uh, criticism um, in, in small parts of the, uh, you know, small, from small groups about how much aid there is or how much support, saying there should be less support for Ukraine. Um, but it seems to me that um, polls are showing, you know, fairly strong support, um, and it, it has, doesn't seem to have been flagging yet. Is that what you would say, or do you have a different... Uh, a different view of what's happening with that 
Well, it's, it is different in different countries. I think in the U.S. we've seen, um, you know, strong but gradually, you know, softly declining support um, over time, increasing questions about the amount of, of money that's being spent. Um, we do see a very clear partisan divide um, between Democrats and, and, and Republicans, although perhaps not as clear as we might expect to see, largely because the Republicans haven't themselves actually settled on a, on a, a, a party line um, when it comes to, to Ukraine. Um, uh, and, and so that could actually, Republican support um, or lack thereof could go in either direction, I think, depending on how on, on how the party decides to, to approach this issue, as, uh, particularly as we approach the, the, the primaries. Um, but, um, you know, we see s similar things. Uh, we see partisan divides in, um, in, uh, in Germany, uh, to a certain extent in, in France, um, on this, we don't really see partisan divides in, in the UK where, uh, there really isn't any daylight between any of the major parties when it comes to support for, uh, for Ukraine. But what I think concerns me is that the argument that has been, used thus far to talk about the war. Um, go back to President Biden's State of the Union speech, for example. Um, the argument that's been used to talk about the war to Western publics has been predominantly a moral argument, right? That we are doing this because it's the right thing to do. We're standing up for a democratic state that's being bullied uh, by an authoritarian state. We are standing up for values. We're standing up uh, for, um, uh, uh, for what's right. Uh, and all of that is true and all of that is wonderful. Um, but I'm not entirely convinced that it's enough. Uh, there are very good reasons why Western countries uh, have an interest in making sure that Russia does not win this war and that Ukraine does win this war in clear and uncontrovertible, uh, incontrovertible terms. Right? Um, Briefly, right, we will not want to live in the world that emerges uh, if Russia uh, is allowed uh, to win this war. And when you talk to people on Capitol Hill, in the administration, in governments around Europe, all of the policymakers understand that, right? They understand the consequences for global peace, security and prosperity um, if, uh, if Russia does uh, win this war. I wish they would have that conversation with their own publics so that people, including Republicans in this country or, or, or some people in, in Germany, for example, who are you know, concerned about whether it's morally the right thing for, um, uh, for uh, Germany to be getting involved in a, in a war on, on, on the European continent, um, you know, for, so that people understand the, the policy consequences, not just the moral consequences of, um, of allowing this war to go uh, in uh, in Russia's direction. Um, and that to me is sort of the, the, the missing leg, uh, of, of the Western response, at least, you know, politically, uh, it would also help, I think, deal with some of the reasons why support for this war you know, has flagged and, and, and will flag, which is that people frankly are concerned about, um, you know, their own livelihoods. People are facing cost of livings crises in various countries, uh, uh around, uh, uh, the West. We have significant structural issues and imbalances and inequalities to deal with in our own societies uh, and, uh, and economies. Um, and we have somehow sort of allowed ourselves to, to believe that we can, uh, you know, uh, separate the foreign policy aspects of this war right, from what's happening uh, internally. Um, from a voter's perspective, it doesn't work that right. right? They, they, they have to 
um, you know, live in this world, in both parts of this world uh, at the same time. And it comes uh, home to people in very material ways. Um, and if we don't recognize that, if we don't acknowledge that, don't support that and help societies and economies, um, you know, bear the costs that this war uh, is imposing on us and will continue to impose on us, uh, then even if we don't undermine support for the war itself, we will undermine support for the governments uh, that have been committed to this war. Uh, and that instability, again, will redound to Putin's uh, uh, favor. Right? So I, I do wish that, that we would, and our politicians would learn to talk about this war in new ways. Uh, that's, uh, thanks very much, uh, Sam. Thanks for that, that answer. Uh, we do have a question that which I'll read uh, from Matt, uh, M-A-T. The question uh, is, why would Ukraine ever agree to stop fighting when Medvedev uh, said last week that Russia would be prepared to go to the Polish border? Uh, if Ukraine stops fighting, then uh, they may face a mass genocide. That's clear from the way Russia has acted so far in occupied areas. It's a good question, an important question. It's a good question, even without paying attention to Medvedev, who, frankly, I don't think is worth paying a lot of attention to. Right? Um, he's much more of a media personality, frankly, than a than a politician, even if he holds theoretically important office. Um, but I think um, you know the um, the question is uh, is a clear one, right? Uh, and um, I think if I were a Ukrainian citizen, which to be very clear, I'm not, right? Um, but if I were Ukrainian citizen, I would feel very similarly to um, to, to the way that, that that Matt has has posed the question. Um, Ukraine can and and should right uh, be fighting for everything that is that is Ukraine's and and is owed uh, uh, to it, and should be very very concerned about the possible consequences of of um, ceasing to fight. Uh, my only point in saying that that can shift, right, is that, you know, look, history does know circumstances in which that has shifted. Um, and um, and again, that is, you know, the, the sovereign and democratic right of, of, of Ukrainian citizens. The point is that we shouldn't expect Zelensky's um, position on, on how much to fight for, right, to shift until and unless Ukrainian public opinion shifts. And um, it would be, you know, the corollary of that is it would be a tremendous mistake uh, for Western politicians to try to shift Zelensky's position um, uh, ahead of wherever the Ukrainian public is. Right? Um, all that will do is undermine um, Zelensky's position vis-a-vis -vis his public. It will create political instability uh, in, uh, in Ukraine, and it will communicate to Ukrainian citizens themselves that the West is no longer uh, on their side. And once again, that's not going to create a world in which we want to live. Um, so it's, again, the point here is that Zelensky you know, draws his power, he draws his position, and he draws his policies uh, from the Ukrainian population and not the other way around. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and I think we see that sort of, that idea kind of tested very often, you know, you, you see kind of pushes, not from the governments, uh, but from, you know, from people, some people in the West, um, kind of pushing for, for certain, uh, you know, for ceasefire talks without really talking about, you know, the conditions. 
that sort of thing. So you get, you kind of get a lot of that. Um, and in fact, uh, in connection with Medvedev, who I agree, um, you know, is, is uh, his, what he says is basically just part of the, the propaganda. Um, but I, I guess he, he came out with, you know, said, oh, Ukraine is considering, a, you know, a split, you know, give Russia uh, the Donbass and, and other parts. And, and of course, Ukraine came back and said, you know, no, this, this is not happening. But, but this is just one example of how uh, these kind of ideas get out there of uh, and, and, and there's a risk that that people in the West may may push, um, may try to push Zelensky and the Ukrainian government uh, in directions that, that Ukrainians are not are not ready to go in at all. OK, um, uh I'll call on another questioner, uh, Martin. Uh, please go ahead. Thank you, Steve. And uh, I, I fully agree with what the professor was saying before. Um, I'll just, if I may, uh, Steve, if that's okay, um, Martin calling from um, Canada. Um, I think some observations. Uh, to me, in conversation with a, a wiser friend, uh, the great export of Russia right now is shame. And, and I think we in the West, and I, I hope you don't mind me using the collective we, of course, we in the democratic West have to keep reinforcing that um, in the media as well, um, that what this um, character, I call him Putler, as others have in Russia has done, has brought great shame upon the Russian nation. And, and I think that's incumbent uh, in my opinion, at least, to to show that uh, what he's done with this war of genocidal aggression against Ukraine, this unprovoked war, and you know the the kidnapping of uh, of all of these children into Russia uh, from Ukraine, um, and of course the the death and destruction that he has brought to um, Ukraine itself. Um, we really, I think, have to keep reinforcing that so that, um, you know, the, the message is continuous and we don't forget that really, and, and I hope I'm not overstating it, but I'll say it because I believe this fervently, is that this war that Ukraine is fighting, uh, Steve and, and everyone else, is, um, is uh, and, and which, which the West is, is supporting by and large, is uh, not only for the independent sovereignty and maintenance of democracy in Ukraine, uh, but it is for us as well. Uh, I don't think we can um, really overstate that point. So uh, I just wanted to bring that to the attention of, of you and, and everyone else that um, one year into this conflict, I, I am as committed as ever uh, uh, to... Uh, to support what I feel is a just cause against uh, naked, um, unprovoked aggression. And that's really, really crucial. And, and let me just conclude again, and I'm sorry for, for blabbing and thank you for letting me uh, pontificate like this, Steve. Um, but uh, I, I think that uh, we, have, um, we have a real responsibility uh, I believe this very much that um, we have to point these factors out. And by the way, there's a, 
a, a post on Twitter today by the Minister of Foreign Affairs of Lithuania. Um, uh, and I encourage people uh, who are listening to this uh, this uh, week ahead in Russia uh, from Radio Free Europe uh, to to look at it. And he gives all the reasons why why uh, Ukraine must win and can win in total. Okay, so that's enough for me. And, and thank you for listening. And uh, I'll drop down to listener. And perhaps you, Steve, and, the prof- and Professor, you could comment. Uh, thanks, thanks, Martin. I'll just um, I'll I'll just speak briefly on that. I mean, that was part of what why I was uh, I was mentioning what Sam wrote in, in the start of his Substack. I don't have it in front of me, but um, it was, to me it served as a reminder of you know yet yeah, this is uh, you know this is a horrible uh, war of aggression. Um, it's happening every hour, every day, um, and that's something that. You know, Putin is obviously trying to to make people in Russia not pay attention to and forget and get used to, uh, and it's something that that we we can't get used to uh, and shouldn't. Um, so, so thanks for your comment. Uh, I don't know if Sam wants to wants to add anything. I would uh, agree really with everything that was uh, that was said, and there was uh, there was a lot in there. I'm not sure there was a question, but but um, I mean. Yes, and, and I think Steve, coming back to you know to, to what you were just saying, um, yeah, as analysts, we don't use the word a lot, but but empathy is a really important analytical skill, I think, and being able to, um, it, you know, it's something that's very difficult to do, and, and certainly difficult to do all the time, right? But every once in a while, you know, picking yourself uh, up out of your own shoes and, and, and putting yourself in the shoes of of people in Ukraine uh, facing this war uh, really does bring a lot of of clarity, uh, I think you know the other thing that that, that Martin mentioned, right, um, is um, if if I'm interpreting this correctly, and I think it's absolutely true, right, is that in in a very real sense, right, this is also um, a war that um, that Putin is is perpetrating uh, in and against his own uh, country, and it comes back, Steve, to a lot of the things we were talking about. Uh, earlier, obviously, what you know, there, there are a lot of Russians who support this war, uh, for one reason or another, um, and uh, and I don't want to justify that in any sense. And certainly, what what Russians of any stripe are facing, um, you know, pales in comparison to what uh, Ukrainians are uh, are facing. Um, but you know, looking ahead to 2024 uh, and Putin's uh, you know, impending re-election and, and, and anything else in, in Russian politics. The reality is that Putin has decided uh, and found really that this war um, uh, cements and solidifies his position. I don't know whether that's why he went into it in the first place. I'm not going to try to psychoanalyze uh, his, his decision-making. Um, but the reality at the moment right, is that it justifies everything that he is doing uh, in, in, in Russian politics and empowers him in ways that that really he has never enjoyed before. Uh, and so, uh, you know, whether you are, uh, you know, primarily concerned uh, or even only concerned about what happens in, in Ukraine, uh, or whether you think, um, as, as I tend to, that, um, you know, once Russia has lost in Ukraine, that lasting peace and security and prosperity in Europe was going to require change in Russia itself. Um, the uh, only way either of those things are achieved is through, again, uh, a complete and incontrovertible uh, defeat of everything that Putin is trying to achieve, whether that's in Ukraine or in Russia itself.
Okay, thanks very much, Sam. Um, a question from, I think this will be the question uh, from CC Ryder. Uh, you can go ahead. I'm glad I heard the little chuckle. I'm glad you appreciate it. My name. Um, so I'm a fan of Radio Free Europe and journalism in general. Come from a family of journalists. But I just wanted to say that we should be really careful because words matter. And so, for example, the title of the space, War Without End, is a, actually a Russian talking point. And so with this, you know, Putin just said, I mean, the definition of genocide, right? We'll do this till we kill you forever if it takes. So, you know, it's kind of like George Lakoff, the political strategist. If any of you have ever read him, he has a book called Don't Think of an Elephant. So, like, in the 80s, in my country, the Republicans came up with the term tax relief. And then even the Democrats were using the term tax relief. Um, so I would just say that I love you guys. I support journalism. I'm not one of those um, media critics, but I but I do take issue with the title "War Without End" because there's just a little sensationalist flavor to it that that you know for people that are stopping by and don't especially that don't know a lot, they just take those sound bites like that. I see where you guys meant to go with it, but I just think it's a little um, misplaced because people take that and run with it, and it is just an out and out Russian talking point. Thanks. All right. Thank you. Um, yeah, I'll just say, I mean, I appreciate your, your point uh, very much so. Um, and we're actually very careful. Um, I try to be very careful uh, to not um, kind of repeat or any or, or somehow amplify uh, Russian Kremlin, Putin talking points, um, you know, it's become such a huge issue now because, you know, for years, media organizations were reporting a lot of things that Putin or Lavrov or, or anyone would say. Um, and, you know, now and, and in recent years, doing that without, without context, um, without sometimes a lot of context, uh, you know, really risks um, uh, repeating or, or amplifying Kremlin um, propaganda. So I appreciate your point. I mean, as, as you probably, uh, as you probably discerned, the idea was to ask the question, you know, is this, is this as, as Putin was seeming to char uh, characterize it in his speech, you know, is it a war without end, a war, that's open-ended, uh, but but I take your point, and thanks for your for your close uh, attention to what we're doing. Appreciate it. And on that note, um, I think we are out of time. So um, I'm just going to, uh, I'll wrap it up here. Um, and uh, thanks very much for your questions and comments. Uh, and uh, Sam, thanks very much for joining me. Thank you.
All right. So once again, I've been speaking to Sam Green, a professor at the Russia Institute at King's College London, director of Democratic Resilience at the Center for European Policy Analysis, and co-author of the book Putin versus the People. Uh, my name is Steve Gutterman, editor for Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus in the Central Newsroom at RFERL. As I mentioned at the start, this conversation will also be published as a podcast, and you, you can subscribe to The Week Ahead in Russia and other RFERL podcasts on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, I'll be away next Monday, but The Week Ahead in Russia will go ahead, as usual, with a guest host, so please tune in. And please keep an eye out on Fridays for my newsletter, The Week in Russia. Thanks for listening.